Hi, I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, and this is Your Own Podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network, providing quick and handy tips for veterinarians on the go. Today we're joined by Dr. Jeff Caswell, pathologist at the OBC with a special interest in bovine respiratory disease, as well as Dr. Joanne Hewson, internal medicine specialist at the Department of Clinical Studies at OBC. So we're going to be talking about bovine respiratory disease, and today our first topic of our first of our three-part series is clinical aspects of bovine respiratory disease. So thanks for joining us, guys. Well, it's great to be here. I love talking about this topic. Thanks, Melanie. Uh, so Jeff, do you want to just tell us why you know why why are we talking about this today? Well, just around the corner is autumn, and it's the time of year when veterinarians' minds turn to bovine respiratory disease, of course. So as, as a pathologist, I'm, I guess I'm often surprised that at the time of necropsy, we see uh, cranioventral lesions of consolidation in the lung, uh, and many times those, those cases don't have any clinical indication of respiratory disease. So Joanne, does this surprise you? I wish I could say that it did, Jeff, but I, I know that we're beginning to recognize our current limitations with respect to clinically diagnosing respiratory disease in cattle. Studies are showing us that we miss many, many cases of subclinical pneumonia in cattle, not just in feedlots, but also in replacement heifers and dairy calves alike. When these carcasses are examined at the time of slaughter, there's a high prevalence of lung lesion seen. Abscesses, adhesions, evidence suggesting prior pneumonia in these animals. But when we compare these findings to the treatment records on farm, a significant portion of these animals were never diagnosed and treated for BRD. We're missing seeing them. While one could argue that subclinical disease means the animal's own immune system is coping with the infection, there's a recognized impact on growth and therefore ultimately on production when subclinical pneumonia is missed. We need to do better. So on that note, Joanne, can you lead us through uh, maybe just some tips or some information about clinical, uh, how to make a clinical diagnosis? Sure. Yeah, diagnosing respiratory disease in cattle used to be just about detecting fever. This is not a sensitive test, and as I said, many cases got missed as a result. But in recent years, there's been a tremendous push to try and identify clinical tests for respiratory disease that can improve our ability to detect and treat cases earlier, and therefore, hopefully, more effectively manage the impact of disease on animal well-being and on production. This has included a variety of approaches, including use of more objective clinical scoring methods, thoracic ultrasound examination, blood testing of inflammatory proteins, and tests to identify specific respiratory pathogens. But each test has their merits and their limitations, which are important to recognize. And how you use these tests, the feasibility both economically and practically, and the interpretation will vary with the context. Are you diagnosing illness in an individual animal? Managing an outbreak in a herd? <laughs> Working with intractable feedlot animals and putting yourself at risk of injury? Never. <laughs> <laughs> or performing surveillance of disease over time? This is going to dictate which tests you use and how you use them. Okay, so let's start with the basics, the clinical scoring systems. How, how are they better than measuring temperature to detect BRD? Well, in most instances, the front line in detecting BRD is done by non-veterinary personnel, the staff performing the daily feeding of dairy calves, the people checking the pens in the feedlot, and improving their clinical acuity to detect diseased animals needs to move beyond instinct and involve more purposeful assessment of the animals. 
Clinical scoring methods allow you to intentionally consider more than just fever as a potential sign of respiratory disease. Other signs, such as the animal's mentation and appetite, nasal or ocular discharge, coughing, abnormal breathing effort or pattern, these are incorporated into your assessment and allow you to detect respiratory signs at different stages of clinical disease. By using previously validated clinical scoring methods, such as the Wisconsin Clinical Score for Dairy Calves, which includes assessment of rectal temperature, cough, nasal or ocular discharge, and ear carriage, or the DART method in beef feedlot cattle, which includes depression, anorexia, a respiratory index and rectal temperature, you have some sense of the likelihood that an elevated clinical score is indeed indicative of respiratory disease. You can train producers to use these same clinical scoring systems so that they can screen their animals frequently and call you earlier with their concerns. So, Joanne, I'm just going to ask a, a, an additional question there. So, mm -hmm. how, what is the uptake of those systems in, um, in Ontario? Well, I think that they're gaining some traction for sure. I mean, I think that uh, the clinical score for dairy calves has been well received and certainly uh, heavily promoted by researchers and veterinarians alike for using to score and assess dairy calves on a daily basis. Okay. As far as uh, more sensitive methods, such as the DART scoring system for feedlot cattle, it's tough to say whether that really takes you beyond the instinct. A lot of these uh, riders or, or folks that are walking the pens are already kind of performing this when they're looking at the individual animals for signs of depression or separation from the group. So I think we already did have some degree yeah. of uptake in it's the It's just past. more formalizing it. That's right. Sorry. Okay, and then what about lung auscultation since we haven't talked about that so far? Yeah, I mean as a clinician I think the more aspects of the clinical exam we perform, the more likely we are to detect subtle abnormalities and thereby improve disease detection. Clinical scoring systems, as I just talked about, are a useful screening test and provide a quick method to assess multiple animals frequently. But the more we check the animals and the more we pick up early disease, will hopefully translate into more effective management of the disease to minimize impact on well-being of the animals and on production. But when you're faced with a potentially ill animal, one that has been flagged as suspect based on the clinical scoring system, I think it is the role of the veterinarian to take that next step in assessing the animal, do a full examination, including assessing respiratory effort, the presence of abnormal noises during respiration, and yes, performing lung auscultation. You can refine your differential diagnoses significantly by simply taking this time to localize the pathology to the upper versus the lower respiratory tract. I think Jeff's gonna talk a little bit more about that later, hopefully. Auscultation of the lungs may help you to identify when pathology is localized, such as craniovental bronchopneumonia, versus diffuse, such as hematogenously spread emboli, for example. With lung auscultation, you can also detect pleural effusion and friction rubs from fibrin coating the lung surface. Listening to the trachea can help you identify secretions, wheezes from bronchoconstriction, or upper respiratory tract strider. You get a lot of information from your stethoscope. But of course, limitations do exist for auscultation. The background noise of the barn, continuous struggling by the animal during your examination, inability to safely perform this procedure on some beef cattle in a chute, 
and the fact that much of the lung sits below the muscles of the forelimb. These all detract from the sensitivity of lung auscultation as a diagnostic test. As well, we recognize there's great subjectivity in the interpretation of lung sounds by practitioners. So the utility of this test, respiratory tract auscultation, is context dependent, just like the other tests we use to clinically detect BRD. It can be exceptionally useful in individual animals when you're able to perform it safely, but in other situations, the potential benefits may not outweigh the cons of attempting it. Yeah, I guess if you're going to get squashed, it's probably <laughs> not a good idea. That's right. You can't do it in every case. <laughs> if, you, if a practitioner was going to, you know, wanted to do a review of, of maybe making sure that they are up to date on all the, on all the, the current terminology and things like that, where's the best place for them to go? Um, well, certainly there are um, some many journals that are now available online with open access. So uh, just reviewing basic terminology of respiratory sounds could be found uh, through most review articles like at the Vet Clinics North America. Okay. Um, that's probably a good place to start. Okay, and we're going to post that on our podcast page as well. So great, good link. Okay, so you mentioned some other diagnostic tests that kind of go beyond the clinical exam. Uh, what are the benefits of using, for example, ultrasound to, uh, to examine the chest? Mm-hmm. Thoracic ultrasonography has emerged as a more sensitive method to detect clinical and subclinical pneumonia in calves on farm. And this can be done using the linear probe you carry in your truck for reproductive work and enables you to examine most of the lung field. You only need alcohol to douse the chest. No clipping is needed in calves, so the procedure can be very quickly performed. It can take less than two minutes to screen both sides of the chest in the calf once you get the hang of it. It's really important, though, to methodically check the entire lung field when you do perform chest ultrasound, since commonly the lesions lie cranioventrally, deep under the forelimb musculature. You really need to move that forelimb ahead and put the probe deep into the axilla when you're examining the cranial lung field. It's also important to practice it on a bunch of normal calves before you branch out into trying to detect disease. The more normals that you see, the more you're going to recognize when something is abnormal in the affected calves. Thoracic ultrasound exam is a very useful tool to diagnose lower respiratory tract disease in the dairy setting particularly in calves. Its utility in a feedlot is less so, given the difficulties in performing such an exam quickly with an eschute on heavier cattle. Their hair coat can be coarser, and your image is not always as good. It's also hard to get into the axilla when they're standing in the chute, and there's the reality of actually doing this test in a feedlot where time in the chute equals money lost and increased labor requirements. It may not offer a cost-benefit advantage to use this as a screening tool for feedlot cattle. Although I feel it should still have its place in confirming BRD and in tracking disease over time in affected animals. Okay. Um, and are there other tests like blood work that you can use? Yeah, uh, the most useful test that can be performed on blood would be the measurement of acute phase proteins. Each species has certain acute phase proteins that are better markers of inflammation in cattle, haptoglobin and fibrinogen are more sensitive indicators of inflammation, with haptoglobin being the better of the two in most cases. They tend to rise concurrently with the onset of fever, so they may not offer necessarily an advantage over checking rectal temperature. Haptoglobin tends to rise very quickly in the early phase of bovine respiratory disease, but then it normalizes, so sampling should be done early in the course of clinical disease. 
If you sample too late, the haptoglobin value may have already decreased and may fall back within the normal reference range. Okay, and are there limitations beyond timing of your sample when you're measuring the acute phase proteins like haptoglobin? Hmm. Yeah, as with all the other tests, how you use the test will impact interpretation of the results you re receive. There's a lot of overlap of acute phase protein concentrations between healthy and diseased animals, so the cutoff you set will impact the sensitivity of this test for detecting disease. A lower cutoff will improve your sensitivity, but will result in more false positive results, meaning you're over-treating for BRD in actually normal healthy animals. In contrast, if you choose a higher cutoff, it means you may miss some of the milder cases, but you won't be over-treating healthy animals. However, if you're only treating the more severe cases based on a higher cutoff, you can result in reduced treatment efficacy. So, you need to choose what's the most important aspects to the producer and adjust the cutoff of this test accordingly. So being that it's, it sounds like it's kind of a difficult diagnosis sometimes to make, um, so what can you do to optimize your odds of successful diagnosis? Well, as with most situations in veterinary medicine, using more than one test, using several tests in combination, is going to improve your clinical accuracy. So screening cattle frequently with a validated clinical scoring system is going to be the front line. But then following up with other tests in suspect animals is a very important next step, I feel. And the more assessment you do, the better your diagnostic accuracy is going to be. You need to balance the feasibility and economics of the situation and select your tests accordingly. Ideally, you would go beyond the clinical scoring system and do other tests such as the thoracic ultrasound and also measure acute phase proteins when you can. And is there a benefit to identifying the actual pathogen or the pathogens involved or is it just academic? <laughs> That's a great question, Melanie. Uh, most cases of BRD can involve a combination of viral and bacterial pathogens, and as you move through the time course of the disease, you can experience different pathogens. So knowing which pathogens you're dealing with is important to help you with drug selection, but it also helps with planning preventative measures such as vaccination of the at-risk animals. There's a couple of ways you can approach this. You can either follow disease trends, or you can do pathogen testing during an outbreak. There have been, honestly, great efforts to identify the pathogens of BRD, and we have a good working knowledge of the various viruses and bacteria that can be involved. As well, antimicrobial susceptibility trends have been tracked over the years by diagnostic laboratories and provide us with good information on the efficacy of the various antimicrobials. But it's important to follow these trends over time and, you know, to stay current on what is happening in your area. For example, Mannheimia hemolytica used to be the biggest problem facing feedlot cattle. But over the years, with improved vaccination efficacy and some of the newer antimicrobials, it's much less common to see compared with other pathogens such as mycoplasma. So trends change over time, and we need to practice current medicine. To do this, there's an ongoing need to test for pathogens during outbreaks, for sure. And what's the best way to do that if you're, you know, if you're a know, budget-conscious uh, producer or your uh, budget-conscious veterinarian? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think I should start by saying right from the output that uh, pathogen identification during outbreak is not going to be a cheap endeavor. So for sure you need to um, take the appropriate samples and do the appropriate testing, but go into it with your eyes open recognizing that uh, it's going to cost a significant amount of money to the producer to investigate the outbreak. 
for viral testing, you can identify the causative agents through virus isolation, antigen or nucleic acid testing, such as ELISA's or PCR, or you can collect serum early in the disease and again several weeks later to pair for serology to detect rising antibodies against one or more pathogens. So antigen and nucleic acid testing will provide the most immediate results and are useful early in an outbreak to determine what you're dealing with. Virus isolation and paired serology, on the other hand, will retrospectively tell you what you were dealing with, but the time lag to obtain results will not help during the outbreak. Rather, the benefit comes later from strategizing future preventative action on the farm, such as vaccination plans. Honestly, these latter approaches, virus isolation and paired serology, don't hold great appeal to the frontline veterinarian when trying to manage the outbreak in real time. But their value should not be underestimated, in my opinion, in the bigger picture of managing BRD overall as a profession, in identifying emerging trends, assessing vaccine efficacy, and detecting new pathogens over time. Okay, so if they were going to do some testing, um, whatever they choose, what, would, uh, what samples would, would people be looking at? Well, for virus isolation or for antigen or nucleic acid testing, uh, deep nasal swabs or nasopharyngeal swabs would be ideal. It's important to recognize that the swabs need to be placed specifically into virus transport medium if you're going to do virus isolation. You can't use the same medium found in bacterial swabs when you're doing viral testing. So most diagnostic labs will provide you with tubes of viral transport medium, but you can keep frozen until you need them and just keep them on hand. So you take your swabs, the swabs are placed into the viral transport medium, and then you ship them on ice to the lab for testing. Now, if you happen to not have virus transport medium on hand, sterile saline is the next best substitute rather than trying to use bacterial swabs instead. So you'd use a nasopharyngeal wash sort of thing? Uh, you can. I mean, in reality, trying to do a nasopharyngeal wash uh, on cattle is challenging. You know, you're squirting saline up into the, the pharynx and trying to catch the fluid that you obtain. Uh, and they're throwing their head around and the fluid's going everywhere. So Sounds like uh, fun on a yeah. fall day. <laughs> Can't think yeah, of anything better. <laughs> I, I think rather than a wash, just um, being a bit more aggressive with your swabbing technique is better. So, you know, rather than just sticking the swab up and then pulling it back out quickly, stick it up, roll it around a bit, and try and rub the mucosal surface uh, so that when you pull the swab out, you actually have a bit of discoloration on the end to show that you know, you meant business when you were so brushing. So you got something of... done up there. That's right. And then you put it into a little container with some saline in it. Yeah, or the viral transport medium yeah. if you have it. It is the best thing, mm -hmm. yeah. And you can put it into, you can put your PCR swabs into virus transport too, right? Yep, yes you can. So Joanne, if you were going to be sending off tests, and what would you, what would be the easiest thing for you to send off for with so many pathogens involved? Well, typically when you're submitting to the lab, uh, most labs will offer a quote-unquote respiratory panel of testing. Uh, so if you were doing, for instance, paired serology, they will often have identified the most common respiratory pathogens mm -hmm. and they'll offer a panel that you select and it just automatically covers all of those various pathogens. Uh, if you have a suspicion of a particular uh, virus that you want them to check for though, it would be important to specify that. For instance, for virus isolation, um, the 
type of cell culture that you use can impact your ability to retrieve the virus successfully. So if they have an idea of what you're looking for, they, they're better able to set up the most appropriate uh, inoculation of cell culture for that. Okay, great. Um, so nasal pharyngeal swabs, are they also the preferred sample for bacterial pathogens? Uh, well, while nasal swabs may be helpful for upper respiratory tract viral infections, they have less value for diagnosing bacterial infection in the lung. Um, false positive results can certainly occur when you use nasal swabs for bacterial culture because many of the known pathogens are actually commensals of the upper respiratory tract, so they're there normally. If you grow the bacterium from the nose, it doesn't directly translate into representing bacterial pneumonia from this organism in the lung. And, and thus the specificity of this test is limited when you apply it to the individual animal. Having said that, if you were to sample multiple clinically affected animals by nasal swab, say you took 10 from a pen of 100 that had bovine respiratory disease, and you put those nasal swabs in for bacterial culture, if you got the same result from multiple animals, you'd have much greater faith that you were identifying the true pathogen in this case. So to summarize that, nasal swabs are not a great sample for bacterial culture in the individual animal, but can potentially be used and have some meaning when you sample multiple animals from the same outbreak. Mm -hmm. The alternative to nasal swabs and a more direct method to obtain a sample that represents disease in the lung is to perform a percutaneous tracheal aspirate. While I don't see these commonly done, they're very easily done in the field setting if you can adequately restrain the animal. You just clip a site um, on the neck and surgically prepare it at the junction between the middle and distal thirds of the trachea. Once you've prepped the area, you insert a needle between the tracheal rings and you pass a sterile catheter, such as a Tomcat catheter, through the needle into the distal trachea. If you slowly infuse a small volume of saline, like 10 or 20 mils of saline, and then retrieve it back into your syringe, you'll have a great sample for pathogen testing for sure. I recognize this procedure does take more time and slightly more invasive than a nasal swab, but the sample is more representative of lung disease. Personally, it'd be my test of choice when attempting to identify bacterial pathogens in suspected pneumonia in the individual, whereas Nasal swabs performed on 10% or more of the affected group is also a realistic and acceptable method to test for pathogens in the group setting, as I talked about before. Okay, and would you pool those samples or do them individually? Uh, you could do either. I mean, certainly when you pool the samples, uh, you're reducing the cost yeah. of doing that test. Um, I, I personally feel if a subset of them are positive and you kind of dilute that by pooling the samples, you are reducing the sensitivity of the test a little bit. Sure, okay. Um, so what other methods can you use to, uh, to understand what you're dealing with during an outbreak situation? Well, for diseases um, that result in a fatal outcome in individual animals, a post-mortem examination remains a very powerful method to broadly search for the cause or causes of disease. While laboratory testing is great for showing the presence or absence of a specific pathogen, the clinical exam, like we just talked about, and the postmortem exam have three main advantages over specific pathogen testing. Clinical exam and postmortem exam are broad-based rather than pathogen-specific, so you can identify a broad range of diseases. They're capable of identifying multiple disease processes in the same case, 
and you can prioritize the importance to the, to the clinical problem. And when laboratory testing identifies a particular pathogen, it is the clinical exam and the postmortem exam that are going to help you determine whether that pathogen is significant or not to the current outbreak. Okay, great. So thanks for joining us, Jeff and Joanne. Thanks, Melanie. So we'll, um, we'll be posting all of our tips and all of our links uh, on the podcast site so that if you wanted to check, out, check them out, you can. Um, also, you can join us again next week for our next installment of the podcast. So it'll be a three-part series.